0: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host,
1: David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 191 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Chris Offutt. He's worked as a writer on the TV shows True Blood and Weeds, and is the author of several novels, including Kentucky Straight, The Good Brother, and Out of the Woods. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new memoir, My Father the Pornographer, which describes his difficult relationship with his father, science fiction writer Andrew Offit. When Andrew died in 2013, Chris was left with the task of sorting through his father's papers. Chris had always believed that his father wrote only a small amount of pornography to help pay the bills, but he discovered that in fact virtually all of his father's 400 novels were pornographic. My Father the Pornographer is a fascinating look into the life of a brilliant, cantankerous man and a haunting reflection on the uneasy relationship between creative obsession and family life. And now, here's our interview with Chris Offutt. All right, so we're here with Chris Offutt. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Nice to be here.
1: Okay, so first of all, just tell us a bit about your dad's career as a science fiction writer. How did that get started? Um, He won a uh, college science fiction contest
0: uh, in 1953. Three is was his first publication for an uh, If magazine. Um, it was a uh, for all college students, and that that was his first publication. And then I think several years later, he had uh, fifty nine. He followed it up, uh, uh, I believe, again with If uh, magazine.
1: Right. Well, so tell us when he decided to actually make this his full time job as a professional writer, because he had a whole business that he was giving up to do that.
0: Yeah. Dad had always written, uh, and, uh, loved science fiction and had grown up reading the pulps of the thirties and forties, the pulp, uh, magazines. And, uh, that was his favorite kind of, uh, the sword and sorcery and then, the uh, uh, planet, uh, adventure. Mm, there's a term for it. Uh, adventure on another planet. Uh, uh, big fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs, for example, um, and thought that's what he would write. Uh, he grew up very, very uh, poor in a, uh, a log cabin in uh, in Kentucky, and went to college on a, a full academic scholarship and studied English. When he got out, he wanted money, um, and went into sales. Was a traveling salesman for Procter and Gamble, and then later uh, moved into uh, health insurance and life insurance. He continued to write. He wrote at night. Uh, and he wrote it uh, at night longhand for years. And then on uh, Saturday, he would uh, type everything he'd have written longhand. Uh, he would spend all day Saturday at the kitchen table uh, typing it. And then Sunday, go over it some, but he was also often hung over on Sunday, so he didn't get as much work done. Um, he did that till he was age 36. And, and uh, he had had. Some stories published uh population implosion was a short story that was published in i think sixty uh, maybe sixty seven sixty eight and was included in the world's best science fiction and big anthology um, and that got attention and got uh got him some invitations to the early uh s f cons um in the late sixties by nineteen seventy uh in 1970 he published what would be i think his first science fiction novel a short term uh um look at, at america uh under a mm, kind of a the government had shifted into a christian uh dictatorship and uh the protagonist was part of the the federal obscenity police whose job was to track down people uh uh, if they were having sex and and were unmarried and uh kill the man and uh render the woman uh infertile through you know technological means and there is a revolution and and the story is about a revolution and uh fighting against the the government that way uh, in nineteen seventy he was thirty six and uh had a successful business. His, 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 he started his own uh, insurance company with branches in three towns in Kentucky. He uh, wore suits. He was really trying to uh, model himself after that mid-century businessman uh, uh, approach to life. And he'd accomplished everything he'd wanted in a way. He'd had a, he had a novel out. He had some attention from science fiction. He had a wife. He had four children. He drove a nice car. He had a house he liked but he was uh and he had a good income from sales however dad was miserable he was very very unhappy and decided that he would stop uh that he would he would try to he would shut down his insurance company and pursue his lifelong dream since early childhood of being a writer and that's what he did
1: right and so 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 his early novels are these science fiction novels and which of those do you think are the best or the best remembered today? Um, I'm not
0: sure what's what's remembered uh, within the science fiction world. Uh, the, the book that I like the best personally is called The Castle Keeps. I believe that's from 1972. Um, it's, again, a short-term future. Those were his, his first two books. This one posited a, a different world uh, and in some ways one that's come true. Water is, uh, contaminated. The crops are contaminated. Uh, people in rural areas are homeschooling and, uh, heavily armed against both, uh, external marauders and fearful of the government. Uh, it all takes place in Kentucky and I, I, I think that's his best book. It was heavily researched, uh, and heavily revised. Um, it did not do well and dad was quite disappointed with the, uh, the sort of res- the critical response and the sales.
1: Yeah, I mean, because you say in the book that the castle keeps and also evil is live spelled backward predict things like uh, anti-government militias, corporate influence over federal policy, the creation of the Tea Party, and the rightward shift of the Supreme Court.
0: Uh, that was, I think I think both of those books uh, predicted that to a, to a certain degree. Um, I'm not sure which one did which exactly there uh that you you mentioned but yes i think we've we've seen uh you know he had a, there's an element of prescience to to his uh uh you know kind of paranoid imagination towards the near future, and a lot of that has come true uh, uh you know I wish he'd written more that way because I think that he was good at it, he liked it, he liked the research, and um the worlds that he presented along those lines were really interesting. Uh, they had a. Uh, they were centered in realism and and motivated by character and action as well.
1: Right. I mean, we talked about how was he remembered today. I, I was really only prior to reading your book, I was really only familiar with his name because he appeared in the Thieves World anthologies. Right. I don't know if you're familiar with those.
0: Oh, sure. You know, that's probably what he's most known for. Uh, he had the character Hans Shadowspawn um, was. Dad says was his favorite creation, uh, his favorite character that he wrote about, um, was in the first, I think it was in all those anthologies. There's ten or more. There's a lot of (laughs) them. There was also a comic book. There was even a board game. Uh, and, and the character appears on the cover of, uh, the cover art of some of the books. And Dad really, he really liked Hans. Hans was a teenager who was angry and arrogant and, Carried uh, uh, multiple knives and was violent and short-tempered and not easy to get along with um, and was a, a thief, essentially, and would, you know, have it as adventures in this world.
1: Right. I mean, the, the first Thieves' World anthology was really important to me because in the back of it, Robert Asprin, who was my favorite author when I was a little kid, he has an essay about how he came to edit the anthology. And that was sort of the first scrap of information I ever got about how Science fiction authors wrote, or how books came to be published, that kind of thing. So I just read that over and over, and Andrew Roffit is one of the names that pops up in there. And and so
0: that book uh, or that series, I believe, was very, very uh, ahead of its time in uh, in the way that uh, Bob Aspirant conceived of it, which was he would create the world um, uh, and the city of Sanctuary and and make a, a map uh create the politics of it and uh the royalty and the sort of the areas of town. And then he presented that material to to multiple writers and suggested that they they invent their own character to live in this world um and they could interact with each other's characters. The only big rule was you weren't allowed to kill somebody else's off. <laughs>
1: hmm.
0: uh, which is a good rule. But that kind of writing uh, I had never seen anything like that before then, and rarely since. It's, it reminds me of television in the way it works. Is there's a central world that the characters uh, interact in, and you have a, a, a writing staff of six or eight writers who each write an episode uh, for the television. I thought it was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, did your dad ever talk talk to the kids while he was working on those stories about anything that was going on with the other contributors or anything like that?
0: Well, he talked all the time if he wasn't working, so I don't recall any particular i mean he talked all the time <laughs> um and he he talked about Hans he just talked about what he was working on or or he complained about the world also uh, a lot I don't remember any any particular conversations about the other people that the other writers uh dad was not always that interested in in uh in other other people <laughs> um I know that he corresponded with the other contributors to uh if he was going to include their character one of their characters in his story. he wanted to make sure that uh you know the other writer knew what he was doing and it didn't put the other writer in a jam in terms of a story they they were planning or or uh you know a long term idea they had for the character so there was there was files and files and files of letters uh between dad and all the writers in each, uh, each anthology.
1: Right. So, so in this afterward, this Robert Asprin afterward, I mentioned, he says, uh, Andy wants to know about the deities worshiped, preferably broken down by nationality and economic class of worshipers. Fortunately, he includes a proposed set of gods, which I gleefully copy and send to the other contributors. Right.
0: Well, dad was very interested in that. Uh, you know, he'd been raised Catholic and, uh, uh, an isolated farm life, and among the few Catholics around where he grew up, um, and then sort of threw off the, the the what he thought of as the the shackles of uh, the Church of Silence. Uh, at the same time, he loved uh, ancient mythology; was you know a lay expert or a lay scholar on the the Greek gods, uh, the Norse gods, the Roman gods. Uh, and it really enjoyed their histories and and the the oh all the 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 violence of it, the stories that each person had, the treachery, the loyalty and he for many of his his books he would create uh, a a set of deities and um and then that the inhabitants of the world would be involved with. So it doesn't. I'd forgotten that he did that for uh, for *Thieves' World*, but I am. I, it certainly does not surprise me. I mean, he did it for a lot of books. He loved doing that. Some of his, in, in one way, there, there was a lot of glee in the pages of these invented history. Essentially, if you're uh, writing historical fiction, you have to use reference books. Dad regarded this as a kind of historical fiction, in that it was fictional. Um, and it, it hadn't happened or uh, it would never happen. So he had to invent his own, um, research documents. So they were extensive.
1: Hmm. So, so growing up with him writing science fiction in the house, were you a big science fiction fan or did you read a lot of it? Sure.
0: No, I read tons of it. And, uh, I mean, I read, I read when I was a kid, I read one to two books a day because uh, we lived out in the country and there wasn't a lot to do. Um, and I read all of the books that Dad had had as a child. Uh, uh, all the Edgar Rice Burroughs, for example, they were, I consumed all those by age ten, and then I moved on to the, you know, to science fiction and fantasy aimed at a more adult audience later, uh, with all of uh, Robert E. Howard, for example, and the magazines If, Galaxy. Oh, the magazine I think of F and SF. There was. Uh and they there was a constant flood of paperback novels mainly coming into the house from from publishers and gifts and other writers. So uh I read a lot. And then when they started going to science fiction conventions, yeah. um if if the if the if the con was close enough to where they could reach it by uh, driving four hours or so and the con was would pay an extra room uh mom and dad would take the kids so uh um uh, they were the closest we had to a family vacation uh I spent most of my time in the huckster room uh, I was a big comic books uh, fan I'm still am um and but I met some of these writers from the from uh the seventies and eighties uh the main, late sixties and and mid seventies through the mid seventies so it was great to who, you know, met them, and Piers Anthony visited our house, for example, and, um, you know, this was just part of my childhood, and then I go back to the hills of Kentucky, where uh, it was a completely different culture. People had, you know, walked about armed and rode horses and hunted for game, and uh, completely different from a con, where they've got space guns and swords and, you know, wearing the costumes of their, you know, the door side, for example. (laughs)
1: right, I mean, in the book though it it doesn't sound like you enjoyed the cons all that much uh
0: well, i hmm, I had sex for the first time at a con. that's hard to not enjoy that. um there was a sense of freedom where I did not have to be in charge of my brothers and sisters. I could just run around and do what I wanted. I traded with people and uh uh, I built my comic book collection uh through it. The only drawback. Uh, to the cons is that um, Dad didn't really want to uh, have anything to do with us, uh, his kids. He didn't want to. It's like he didn't really want to acknowledge that that he had kids. Or, or it's also possible that these cons represented such a important escape for him from his life in the hills and from his writing that he didn't want to be, uh, you know, he didn't want to be bothered by uh, by children. He preferred the company of, of the fans,
1: right? And he actually, you say he actually had this alter ego, John Cleve, that he would adopt when he went to conventions.
0: Yeah, uh, John Cleve was Dad's alter ego. Dad had seventeen pseudonyms, and he. Uh, but he always said that that was not the case. He he had one alter ego and named John Cleve, and John Cleve had sixteen pseudonyms. Uh, this important to that. He uh, was a way of, I think, keeping them, keeping uh, partitions in his mind from, uh, from the work he did. Um, and he wrote a, much more porn than science fiction. I mean, he wrote 30 fantasy and science fiction novels and then edited about five uh, anthologies and close to 400 porn novels. His first eight books were porn. And then it would be a science fiction and then back to porn. Um, Keeping the pornographic uh, output a secret was was crucial in the, where we where we live uh, It was uh, uh, you know the buckle of the Bible Belt. In fact, my home county is the same county that was in the news last year, where the the county clerk refused to uh, issue marriage licenses to gay couples uh, in Kentucky. I mean that's our that's the county where we. I grew up and where Dad and Mom lived and we you know, we knew that woman. We knew her mother and, and uh the family. So you can understand I use that as an example that you would understand uh the necessity of keeping the the pornography secret. Um but here's the thing, Dad also uh you know, wanted to get some attention for it. He wanted to people to know what he was doing and that he did it. And at cons he could uh He could let people know that, in addition to the science fiction and fantasy, he wrote this other stuff. And um, the fans did not—they're not—they weren't judgmental. Uh, In fact, many many science fiction writers had moved to porn uh, temporarily around the same time. The the markets for science fiction dried up. Uh, I'm not really sure what happened. It was economics, or the cost of paper, or the shift in the the price of postage. But some magazines um just just vanished rapidly in tandem with the the demand for porn. So quite a few science fiction writers just shifted over there. Uh some use their real name. Uh, uh Philip Jose Farmer and Richard Geist used their own name. Dad used a pseudonym. Um most of those people got out. Uh Robert Silverberg uh was another one, you know. I met these guys as kids. It was really interesting, but they still kept a secret from me. They were dad's friends um Most of them kind of returned to uh science fiction as the markets began to re uh, uh reemerge um but Dad stuck around over there for a long time <laughs> stuck around over there by I main he 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 continued to write porn for a long time, even when uh he could have uh, the opportunities to write and publish. Science fiction uh, had had reemerged.
1: Well, right. I mean, you mentioned that he published just an unbelievable quantity of pornographic novels. You say in the book, Dad wrote pirate porn, ghost porn, science fiction porn, vampire porn, historical porn, time travel porn, secret agent porn, thriller porn, zombie porn, and Atlantis porn. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, could you get what? What would be an example of the plot of say a time travel porn novel? Uh
0: Let's see. Um well, people go back in time and have sex with somebody and then come back to the present and have sex with somebody else. They're can have an affair and it's a completely safe affair, right? There's no way that, you know, the current spouse can find out if you've traveled back in time. Uh and it was dad loved time travel and he loved to uh he loved writing about sex. So he just combines uh softcore and then pretty and then pretty swiftly moved into hardcore pornography with every possible uh, genre. Uh, Atlantis, you know, there was a pornographic novel set in Atlantis. This is perfect for dad because he got to invent uh, an imaginary world that that's also based on a, a sort of a legendary world as well and have characters and have
1: sex. <laughs> <laughs> Well, right. And speaking of him inventing things, apparently he claimed to have invented writing about the clitoris. Yes, he
0: did. He said that he was the first person uh, to include um, the clitoris as a, a mm, anatomical detail in his novels. He also thought that uh, the porn that had preceded him, in general, uh, did not include uh, the a, a woman's uh, enjoyment of sex. or uh, ability to achieve orgasm. So Dad thought that he had pioneered this by uh, uh, including the clitoris in his work. It's hard to know. I I did not do the necessary research to (laughs) verify this. Um, Dad told me, though, that uh, he thought that he, he noticed other writers doing it after he did it first. So he thought that he was being copied and that his, his work was influencing other work, uh, other writers. It's hard to know if it's, if it's true or not. It doesn't really matter if it's true or not in terms of that, because what he believed was what was important, and that's what he believed.
1: Right. You also describe how he had this really interesting Henry Ford-type assembly line approach to writing books.
0: Yes, it was remarkable. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, there were loose-leaf uh, binder notebooks there were fifty or sixty of these that I found in his office after he died. I had no I, when I first pulled them out. I did not know what they were. I couldn't, I couldn't not figure out what, what this was. I, I thought it was maybe it was an early draft, but uh, I just kept going through them and going through them. I realized that they were incredibly well organized uh, uh, lists of descriptions uh And terms uh and also the gods and the and languages and proper nouns uh for different books and then even within the 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 notebooks they were further subdivided uh by descriptions say this, a lot of it was for the porn of uh of body parts uh of different sexual activities that he would just make these long lists of them, and some of them were blacked out marked out with a marker. And I realized that he when he when he wrote when he plugged them into his uh books that he would just black them out in order so he wouldn't uh essentially plagiarize himself and it was a way of 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 kind of mass producing uh these books i mean dad's record was his personal record was one book he wrote it in three days um he was very proud of the fact that he wrote uh 94 pages in one day. Uh which is remarkable. I it's it's unimaginable. Uh and I think that the pace that he wrote and the 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 rapidity that his mind, with which his mind worked um he, he required some kind of system and so he invented this system um of just essentially having the raw material to manufacture uh novels um uh, and to start and then use these use these notebooks uh to you know keep on going no matter what it was. They they also existed for his uh fantasy novels. Um the the same ideas of descriptions of of a of a foreign planet, of different weather, of of uh uh sword play, uh a battle of a dragon, you know, that kind of stuff just was in there. I've never seen anything like it. I've also, uh, it's, it's, I was shocked by it because it was so pragmatic and smart and also strange. I've talked to many writers, uh, and, um, so far I haven't come up with, I haven't heard about anyone else who, who actually approached it this way. I I think Dad invented it. I think it's also possible someone else would have used some variation of the same system because it really is uh pragmatic as hell.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that Pierce Anthony came and visited you. Uh could you tell us more about that?
0: Well, I was about 8 years old. I just remember Pierce Anthony came to visit uh and uh Robert E. Margroff who was uh uh they were all three friends. They they I think there was a uh, some sort of writers' gathering at at a a nearby school and dad um they were all there for that and they came out to the house i I was just a child and i was i was excited because uh we didn't have visitors uh ever really and uh here were here were visitors and they were dad's friends and they were writers and i knew dad well wanted to be a writer and wrote on the weekends and all so it was a you know, I just remember a lot of empty beer cans and cigarette smoke in the mornings when I got up.
1: <laughs> right, but then he and Pierce Anthony had a falling out. Uh, yeah, well, Dad had
0: fallings out with everybody, you know, uh, I mean, everybody from the president of the United States to the <laughs> state senators to everybody in his family, his mother, his sister, you know, his neighbors, uh, other writers, every agent he had, every editor he had, and... Uh, let's see, I think that every, pretty much everybody but his wife, my mother. So, you know, a falling out with Piers Anthony was not surprising to learn. You know, he had a a, a one-sided feud for years with Harlan Ellison. I say one-sided because I wrote about it for Michael uh, Chabon magazine, and Ellison uh, read it, and I'm, I referred to this feud. It was a The story was my attempt to try to write something based on string theory. I'm not sure how good uh, how good I pulled it off, but I tried. Um, one of the alternate realities, sort of based on my concept of string theory, had to do with Harlan Ellison. He called me on the phone and said, "I'd never had a feud with your father. He, you know, I had nothing but respect." And I just it was real, real earth-shaking to me because I'd grown up with Dad uh, uh, complaining consistently about Harlan Ellison. And um, as it turned out, this was, this falling out was one sided.
1: Well, right. Talk about the actual circumstances, right? Because this is, uh, your dad is invited to be the Toastmaster at the World Science Fiction Convention in
0: 1974? Yes, uh, uh, in Washington, D.C.
1: And then what happened that caused him to believe he had this feud with Harlan Ellison?
0: Well, it depends on who you talk to. I've talked to a lot of different people about this, but, uh, so there's, there's the facts of the situation and there's people's theories. The facts were, uh, the, I think it was the Sheraton Hotel. Uh, it was, um, it was an old hotel. It was, it had been a nice hotel, uh, but was in disrepair and was torn down a, a short, a few years after that. Uh, it was in a very hot part of the year. It was a, a sweltering time of the year. And uh, the hotel's air conditioning went out. So, and it was a world convention. So there were hundreds of people there at the big awards ceremony where they give out the uh, the Hugo Awards. Uh, Dad had been invited to be the toastmaster there and uh, sort of the MC. And the guest of honor was Roger Zelazny. And it came time for Dad to introduce uh, Zelazny and. Uh, he just went on too long. He he started talking and people became, uh, impatient. It was very, very hot. Uh, they could not, the, the staff could not replenish ice water, uh, you know, efficiently to all the fans. There was a balcony, which was even hotter and standing room only. And people were there to, essentially they wanted to hear Roger Zelazny speak and uh, not dad, and dad was uh, going on a little too long. No surprise to anybody who knew my father. Um, and, and people had began, begun leaving. And Harlan uh, approached the stage and whispered something to dad and cut his speech short. And, uh, you know, I don't know what Harlan said to dad other than what dad told me, which is, you know, pick it up, you know, pick up the pace, you know, cut it short. Uh, I've also spoken to people who were there who said, uh, yes, uh, that happened. But, you know, Harlem was like playing to the crowd a little bit. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't aimed personally at dad. He was like trying to make a joke out of it and play it to the crowd. I talked to another guy who, who, who had been there and had spoken to dad right afterwards. And what dad said was that he, uh, he had a big finish. Uh, for his uh, for his introduction. And he lost his place a little bit um, and thought that if he continued to talk he would re-remember uh, the trigger for the big end. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, Mom tells me that what insulted Dad was he was uh, actually trying to introduce uh, Roger Zelazny's wife. So Dad thought that was even uh, less respectful. Uh, Dad's final conclusion was that, you know, he was interrupted. Well, believe me, uh, that's the biggest crime of all uh, for my father, one I committed many times with repercussions. You don't interrupt, Uh, and particularly in public like this. And um, Dad took it incredibly personally and said that, uh, uh and refused to go to cons or be in rooms with Harlan and stuff. It was just ridiculous.
1: Right. You actually say in the book too that you, you came home one time and your dad was nailing a book to a tree?
0: Yeah, he well he was he was mad with Piers Anthony and uh nailed his book not to a tree but to a log. We burned with wood, so we had a uh, you know, a, a wood pile. And a rain was coming and so he he nailed it open so that it would get rained on. And I just thought, wow, this is a, you know, there were things like that happen at a certain point as a child that would do things like this. And I thought, wow, this is a, you know, I mean, I may be 14, but I know that that's, that's really a, an unusual behavior, you know, to take Glee into destruction of somebody else's book, especially privately. That was what was odd about it. You know, he thought nobody would, See it, know it. And I'm sure he didn't tell Anthony, but he was capable of these kind of uh, minor acts that gave him pleasure that were uh, malicious and cruel, and they often extended to other to other people. Oh, I, I was going to tell you one more thing about the Harlan Ellison thing. This is what Dad told me the way he interpreted Harlan's interruption was not that Dad had been talking too long, but that Ellison was up for a Hugo that year. And was impatient to learn if he got the award. Um, it's true that Ellison was up for one, and in fact received an award that year. But I'm not sure I, I believe that that's why he uh, tried to hurry that along was to get to his own, you know, his own award ceremony.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it does seem like your dad just had this this really dark aspect to his personality. But it it really struck me in the book. You quote him telling you that he says that I'm the happiest man in the world. Yes,
0: yes, I I uh, that has puzzled me as well. Uh, he the the porn that he wrote had escalating uh, violence, sexual violence to the point of you know torturing people to death, dismemberment, uh, and uh, joy over that from uh, within the characters he would, could be very mean to to people um uh especially if he was, you know if they were close you know uh, he was a bully who would, could be cruel to children and and women more than men uh so I, I they referred to himself as being the happiest man alive because he got to uh make a living from doing what he loved to do which was right there was some part of Dad uh, that had no awareness of uh, how people uh, regarded him, um, and at cons he was uh, in the John Cleve persona, and John Cleve was charming and charismatic and and funny and uh, capable of cruelty to you know a, a fan who dared to interrupt or maybe didn't give dad a drink soon enough or whatever it was that you know whatever transgression there was but this other part of him that was at home and essentially in him all the time was um i think uh unhappy and angry and sad and was gave expression to uh the was expressed through the to the porn so yeah at the same time, he believed that he was the happiest man in the world.
1: I mean, so in addition to all these pornographic novels he was writing for money, you also, after he died, you're going through his papers and you discover this comic he's done called Valkyria?
0: Valkyria. Yeah, uh, he had started a uh, poof in the 1950s. Um, I, I found a record of it. That didn't write personally uh, at all, but he did a little bit in the early years. Uh, he would write notes on manuscripts and he just quit anything that was uh, personal at all Um, he had started this comic book uh, and then destroyed it the year before he got married he felt terrible about it and that was also very uh, dramatic and uh, grandiose so he uh, writes about putting it all in a, in a, uh, a sack and weighing it with rocks and driving out to the middle of a bridge over the Cumberland River and Tossing it over, well of course he did that you know that's you could not get it's a very dramatic form of destruction you know you could also have just burnt it in the backyard, but uh, it required uh, Dad required dramatic actions uh, that would match his the, the drama in his mind and his dramatic decisions. This is a huge decision to destroy everything you've been writing for uh this comic book. Uh, and swore never to do it again and then started at the, the year I was born uh in 58 and then worked on it up until his death in 2013 and it resulted in 4000 pages of uh of a uh, one long comic uh that's really about this person Valkyria and her descendants it's all in the same world he, he invented the the term multiverse before i mean I, you know Earth, very early, maybe he'd read about it, but a universe wasn't enough. And so there was um, these people were, they traveled through time. There were different planets. There were mad scientists who created planets and people did. And time would leap forward by hundreds of years and, and see what these crazy uh, uh, humans were doing. And they were doing the same things over and over, which was just um, capturing women and uh, torturing them to death. Or in the case of Valkyria, uh, who was immortal, uh, um, as Dad wrote it, was a perfect victim.
1: Right, and in the book you, you compare the early Valkyria comics to Henry Darger, who's a famous outsider artist. How do you, how would you compare your father with Henry Darger?
0: Well, I'm not. It, it's the comparison is not so much. Uh, uh, if you look at Darger's work, uh, there, there's despite what he's writing uh what he's drawing about, there's an innocent there's a clear I don't know if innocence is a word, but there's a certain ignorance to to uh his own knowledge of uh of uh, of anatomy. Uh and there's a lightness to it, uh despite it often being about, you know, whatever he was uh making art about. Dad's was similar. Dad was trying to, you know, draw naked women before ever having seen a naked woman. Uh so so that, that's kind of what I meant by that in the in the book is just um um a naivete uh a naive understanding of oh of anatomy i mean he he told me he didn't understand you know that uh you know what women had the genitalia of women he just didn't had never seen anything and didn't know and thought that. I can't remember now. There's something about where he didn't understand, quite understand where babies came from. He thought that the vagina was right in the middle of their stomach, you know, where their belly button was because the babies came out of there. And I think that kind of uh, naivete coupled with curiosity and a very high intelligence kind of led to his thinking that, okay, pornography is uh, a form of sex guides. Uh, I will educate you know people who were uh, maybe as naive as I was so that they you know it's for a greater it was for the greater good of humanity he wrote porn so that other people would know more than he did uh in their curiosity about sex that kind of thing is important to dad you see like like what I'm doing is for something is um uh, for the greater good
1: Right. And I mean, you, you actually said that he thought that he would, would be remembered by scholars as the king of 20th century written pornography.
0: Well, Dad believed in himself quite a bit. Uh, I think it was probably partially uh, begun in sales. You know, you, uh, a successful salesman, you, know, you, you don't sell the product, you sell yourself. And that self-belief necessary to a writer, necessary to a guy at 36 who just decides I'm going to risk everything to be, be a writer. He had a great deal of self-belief. That, coupled with uh, isolation uh, and sort of increasing eccentricity due to the isolation and only being, only being around people at cons, where he was pretty much revered by the fans, uh, led to a great, a great sense of self-belief, where he would say something like that, that he was the best uh, pornographer and he would be remembered, that, that John Cleve, that was the important thing. And that's not that dad would be remembered but John Cleve would be remembered in the future as the king of 20th century porn
1: I mean has there been any scholarly attention given to him or to any of this written pornography from the period
0: uh, I think that scholarly attention to pornography is is still in its early stages uh, there are books about uh, uh, pornography there are classes at some you know some universities um, but there has not been a level of scholarship applied to pornography as to say science fiction or, or horror or crime. Uh, it just, it just hasn't received that, that attention from true scholars. I mean, I tried within the book to, to cover some of this stuff, but you know, I'm not a scholar. I'm, uh, I'm not trained that way. And I don't think that way. And um, I think that, you know, there are the books that I, I, I read several books of scholarship about, Porn, but they were usually very pointed or very specific, you know, and uh, a, a genre, a subgenre, or a period, or or had a political, you know, uh, agenda with it. Whereas there has not been any big overview or to know how dad fit in. Who knows? I leave that to someone else.
1: Hmm. <laughs> so I'm, I mean,
0: I'm I'm porned out. So
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because cause my kind of my reaction reading this book was it seemed like your dad was just kind of born the way he was and it was, he was brilliant and he really made a lot of people around him unhappy. And it was sort of inevitable that that was going to be the way it was. Do you think that he could have been a different sort of person if he chose to or are there any lessons to to take from, from this story?
0: I don't know. Uh, I mean, dad believed that he was, uh, uh, Born with some um you know innate uh interest in sexual cruelty uh and he thought that he uh he had he knew it as a child before ever any exposure to any kind of pornography uh that was you know there was nothing available in the forties really or at least to a farm boy in Kentucky but he knew it about himself um it could have been anything he said. I mean, he had considered, uh, in, in college he was active in politics. He was the president of his fraternity and had thought about entering, uh, state politics after that. Uh, he could have been, you know, the, a corporate, uh, exec at one of the insurance companies. Uh, I think he could have done anything. Um, he had the charisma and the drive of the ambition and the intelligence. Um, but he followed his own path, and that path led to, you know, uh, writing porn and being secret about it. I, you know, I don't know what you mean, like, learn any lessons from it. Like, learn lessons from Dad's life?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, not so much could he have been a politician, but do you think he could have been easier to live with around the house if he had chosen to?
0: Uh... I think anybody can be easier to live with around the house if you choose to, you know? you just you just have to want to. Um so yeah, do I think dad could have been easier to live with? Sure, it didn't matter to him. You know. So that's that's the that's a key thing. It wasn't some I'm not sure if it was something he couldn't help, you know. Um his social skills kind of uh eroded from from sales. There was a lot of uh you know, sales is based on your charisma and making people like you and saying things that will do that. It's manipulation, social manipulation. Um, and he was good at it, but I'm not sure how much good he was with social skills beyond that. Uh, and then when he no longer needed them, you know, why, why would he bother trying to, why would it matter to dad to be, if, if he were easier to be, get along with around the house? I just don't think he cared. I'm serious, it did not matter to him. You know, what mattered was the work and getting the money and feeding the family and all that kind of stuff.
1: Right. I mean, there's a really striking line in the book where he says something like, I never would have thought I'd given you such a miserable childhood that you would have become a writer.
0: Yeah, that's what he told me on the phone when I called him uh, to tell him about my first book contract in 1993, 92. I was very excited and I was surprised by his response. It was not really what I expected. I thought there might have been a little something more. Oh, in my hope there might his response might have been actually about me and the book and my accomplishments. But that that response I think really says more about dad's view of his childhood. Uh than you know my my book or my childhood, but he believed that he had had a horrible childhood, uh, and that was and as a result that's what made him what he was. Um, I don't know it's it's hard to know if it's true or not or how horrible it was, but that's what he believed. And and you know, once Dad locked onto things, uh, you know he 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 liked Freud, he loved Freud, but he was, he never got beyond uh, sort of a Freudian. Uh, Lands in terms of simple psychology and that made it easy for him like okay i had a shitty childhood now i'm uh i'm a writer well that's that it's my childhood's fault and therefore i don't other i can't do anything about it and um it's not my fault so i think when i became you know when when uh random house published that first book he just Uh, applied those same that same thinking to me
1: i mean you mentioned in the book too that uh even though the people in the neighborhood didn't know about all the all the porn novels they just knew about the science fiction novels with sex in them and that was bad enough and people didn't want their daughters to date you and things like that
0: well first of all it wasn't a neighborhood it was a town it had been a town it was the remnants of a town uh, there was only 200 people it was in the hills on dirt roads and, and surrounded by the, you know, in the middle of the Daniel Boone National Forest it had been a mining town. And dad was the only person to move into this town in 30 some years. Everyone else moved out when the mines emptied. So he just, uh, got a big house out there and moved in it. Um, it's not a literate world either. You know, it's, it, at that time it had the highest rate of illiteracy, uh, in the United States, no bookstores. Um, so there weren't that many people to read the books. The books were available at the local drugstore, and they got talked about. It's a, it's a talking, uh, place, you know, gossip and stories. So <laughs> Dad included sex in, uh, those early, uh, those first two science fiction novels, uh, in particularly in the one that dealt with, uh, the, the, uh, Christian dictatorship. Uh, of the United States, because uh, in order to have people tracking down uh, couples engaged in illicit and illegal sex, you know, you have to describe it. So they knew about it that way. Um, an odd thing happened, though. Dad, when he had his insurance agency in town, he had a he had a secretary who did all of his typing for him and all. Um, and when you know, she ran out of work to do at the office. He would ask her to type up the, his short stories for submission. He was a terrible typist. This is important, actually, because he taught himself to type as a child uh, with three fingers, two on his right hand and one on his on his left, and typed faster than anybody I've ever seen in my life, type, with those three fingers, with tremendous intensity and speed. Uh but made a lot of errors and, uh, and changed as he went along. Uh, so he had this, and and the final typing for him was uh, was very tedious. So he would have his secretary uh, do his uh, short stories that he was sending to magazines and um, some of these novels. And somehow or another, a poor manuscript got mixed in with what he asked her to type. I've since corresponded with that uh, secretary Uh, and she told me about it. I mean, she corroborated the story that, uh, uh, that dad mentioned. Um, and the upshot is she had a little brother who was in high school. And when I was a freshman in high school, he was there too. And he had told his buddies in a small place. So people, the word had gotten around. All it took was. You know, one thing. I don't know what she, how much of it she typed. That cut the mistake and took it away from her. She was uh, embarrassed. You know, he was mortified. That's all it took uh, for the word to spread. That coupled with the the more overt sexuality and in, in the early science fiction. Yeah, so I couldn't get dates. Uh, I was also the shortest kid in high school. Uh, I had the longest hair and I was the smartest and I was no good at sports. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) all these things were factors, but it was clear. It was made known to me that people did not, the parents did not trust their daughters, uh, uh, with me because of what my dad did. And, you know, that was the few girls in the high school who, you know, I could actually talk to because I wasn't one of the cool, big, tall. Athletic guys,
1: right? Is it still the same way there now? That if someone was writing sexy science fiction, that it would be that level of hostility from the community?
0: Uh, I have no idea. I mean, I, I haven't lived there in in a long time. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, the that's the the same county where the court clerk wouldn't give out the gay marriage licenses. So you know, that's a hostile response to sexuality. Um, I, it, what you're asking me wouldn't really be the case because that the market for written porn is not uh, is not really doesn't exist in the same way it did in the 1970s. Um, and I, I think that people who do you know write uh, pornographically maybe for e-books or for other sub sub genres, you know they may keep it secret. I don't really know. I, you know, I'm not really part of that world, not, I, I haven't. I, you know, I don't go back home, and I probably won't now. Hmm. You know, it's it's the the you know the Eastern Kentucky has a lawlessness and a sense of individuality, and you know where you leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone, and then we'll get along fine. So, in a way, what Dad did there and how he lived was perfectly in in keeping with the the the, the, the kind of ethics or the philosophy of of the, uh, of the hills. You know, this is the same world where bootlegging, for example, is illegal and churches are against drinking, but everybody knows who the bootlegger is and nobody does anything about it or says anything about it because, you know, if he's not causing troubles with you, don't cause troubles with him. And I think that same mentality is what led to, you know, that county court clerk and then dad doing what he did and probably influenced me. You don't see that in America so much anymore, you know, that uh, the, the kind of a freedom to be a fierce individual as long as you don't mess with other people.
1: Yeah. yeah. well I, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you wrote a kind of a science fiction story for Michael Chabon's McSweeney's Mammoth Treasure of Throwing Tales. So I was just wondering if yeah. you've if you've written any other things that are science fictional in any way.
0: Uh, well, I wrote for True Blood, which is not really science fiction but vampires don't exist hmm.
1: um,
0: i wrote uh as a kid I wrote a lot of science fiction stories I, I can't uh i i began one uh once of uh science fiction so the answer is no you know i've thought about it uh, i like alternative uh histories uh that that kind of sub of science fiction uh I'm kind of tired of the post-apocalyptic uh, novels. They're, they've gotten, you know, they've there's just so too many of them. Uh, I'm more interested in the sort of a uh, you know a novel that was set in instead of the post-apocalyptic the one. That's like the apocalypse is going on now. Uh, I don't see too many of those. I've thought about something like that, and I've thought about another alternative history, and I've have uh, you know I think about it all the time, but I don't know. Know what I'm going to write, and and so the answer is no,
1: I have not. I actually wanted to ask you about True Blood because it, it just struck me that your dad was writing these vampire porn novels in in secret, and now True Blood is this sort of vampire, sexy vampire show, and it's on HBO. It's as mainstream as you can get. Do you see a big change in the culture there?
0: Yes, there is a big change in American cultural attitudes towards sex. Uh, possibly, Dad was that was part of that. He was certainly at the vanguard of of uh, pornography at its, you know, when it was moving into the mainstream. He started in 68 and in 1972 published 18 porn novels and uh, continued up through 85 when the uh, invention of the VHS destroyed the book market because, you know, it's sexual stimulation is the point of porn and if you can watch it, it's, uh, quicker and more interesting for many people than reading it. So, yeah, that uh, the culture has changed with its attitudes towards sex. I didn't know about Dad's vampire porn novel until after he died. It's called the, uh, I think it's Captives in the Chateau de Sade, I believe. It's, um, it's set in New York City. And they, you know, they suck the blood from different parts of the body than the neck. Uh, but they're killed in (laughs) a traditional fashion.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, I think we're going to have to wrap things up there because we're out of time. So I've been speaking with Chris Offit and his new book is called My Father, the Pornographer. So Chris, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Uh, Thank you. You're welcome.
1: And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Chris Offit for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Johannes Almiala, Bill Enloe, and CW who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. Alright, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of
0: Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarrCurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends